0: The presenting sponsor of On Education is Participate. Lately, teachers from all over have been working together to find new approaches to provide quality remote education. Participate's sister company, Participate Learning, presents United We Teach, a global gathering place for educators to share distance learning resources as we navigate these strange times. For these resources and more, visit participate.com slash oneducation.
1: The talent is there. I hear programs. I hear you want to increase black and brown leadership. What I don't hear is what you're actually doing after you release that statement.
2: Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Victoria Thompson is a STEM integration transformation coach and she's an author and a blogger and a speaker on STEM. Her work focuses on K-12 mathematics instruction with research on decolonizing mathematics curriculum for teachers and learners, creating inclusive STEM environments and using technology to bridge equity gaps in STEM education. Welcome to On Education Victoria.
1: Hi, thank you. I'm super excited to be here today.
2: So I just gave everyone kind of the Cole's Notes version of your bio. (laughs) Why don't you take us a little deeper? Tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and what brought you to us today. Yeah, so
1: I started, so I'll get, okay, I'll preface this. So I live in the Seattle area. I'm not a Seattle resident at all. Um, So I live in Tacoma, didn't grow up here. I am a proud New Jersey girl. I'm a Jersey girl, and I'm also a proud product of New Jersey K through 12 public schools. Um, So I always like to throw that out there because I grew up, you know, going to public schools and really loving my experience. And then I went to college in South Carolina I'm at the College of Charleston, and my bachelor's is in elementary education. And then a fun tidbit is my wife and I actually started a scholarship at the College of Charleston uh, for uh, black and um, indigenous people of color, And also people of color that are planning to pursue education as a career, which is very exciting. Um, But that's kind of an aside. But I did go to College at Charleston. And when I graduated, I started teaching at a middle school in Somerville, South Carolina. Um, So I was there for about four years. And then uh, I was dating Courtney at the time. And I was actually like, funny, but not funny. Like I went to a Greek festival with a couple of friends and, you know, she was flying a military mission. She comes back and she says, we're moving. And I say, no, we're not. <laughs> you know, there's no way that we're moving because we did not talk about this. But she had gotten military <laughs> orders to go to the base up in Seattle and um, automatically assumed that I was going to be OK with it. So so she was like, yep, Victoria's going to come with me. Um, and at first I was a little apprehensive. Because even though Seattle's exciting, you know, like I had been, you know, New Jersey, South Carolina, I had been East Coast all my life. So West Coast was something that was a little foreign to me. But we decided to take the leap and go because it just seemed too good to be true. And, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity in Seattle. So Mm. I started out as a full time tech consultant, actually working directly with Microsoft. And that while that was super fun, I just don't think that it was a good fit because I'm an educator first and like a marketer second. Right. And they kind of look for the marketing. You know, how can we put devices in kids hands? How can we get more folks to use apps? And although I love to do that, I I was just missing that connection, you know, with teachers and kids. So I got back into schools and I started working at a school uh, here in the Tacoma area that unfortunately I had to leave. Um, I don't know how how frequently y'all follow me on social media, but, you know, the head of schools at that school was saying some kind of shady stuff and racist stuff. So as a black woman, I just didn't feel safe at all. And I feel like it was fate where, you know, I literally after that meeting where he said those things, I saw a notification on indeed that said, Hey, STEM integration transformation coach, right at technology access foundation. And I was just like, you know, I'm going to apply, We're just going to see what happens. You know, if worse comes to worst, I can find another job. I can stay. You know, I've got options. So I sent over my resume and my application. And literally within five minutes, Mm. the director emailed me and said, "Okay, so you're coming in for an interview tomorrow. Right. And then by the end of the week, I had a different job. Um, Wow. So that's kind of like a whirlwind, you know, back and forth about who I am. But I feel like it really was fate in a lot of different ways that brought me. To where I am now, so that's like me professionally, and then in my personal life, you know, a lot of my research just focuses on STEM education and math education specifically for um, Black and Brown folks in multiple communities. You know, I feel like every so often there's something that happens where it's like, you know, let's cancel algebra two, or you know, we don't need calculus, and you know, like let's do applied mathematics instead. And while they're all valid points, I think that a lot of the attention needs to be redirected towards gatekeeping. You know, if I'm looking at the traditional AP calculus class, it's mostly white kids, you know, they're mostly Asian kids. We don't really see a lot of black, brown and indigenous folks in those spaces. So that's challenging because we, I want equity. I want access. But right now, of course, it's not. You know, it's, it, it's just not happening at this point. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to level the playing field? without cheapening the curriculum um, and kind of making all these false pathways for our students. And that's what I focus on um, just in my, in my personal life.
0: So, Victoria, I, I mean, you have one of the most interesting job titles. I am also an instructional coach. We, yes. we began as a technology integrationist, but you're a STEM integration transformation coach. It has a lot to that title. I mean, a lot of powerful aspects that if I saw that, I'd be like, this is something... That's beyond just a normal instructional coach, right? So yes. tell us about your move from a teaching role to this coaching role, and I've I've been reading some of your blog posts about, you know, your even your day to day activities as a uh, as a coach and and what that's like, and uh, just tell us about that move that transition.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to preface this by saying that coaching roles are really hard to come by, right? You might have 40 plus teachers in a school, but one coach, or yes. maybe if you're lucky and, and and if you're in a small district, maybe one coach per district. Um, so that to me, when I got that job notification, I, I just kind of thought, okay. like this is my opportunity and I'm gonna take it because coaching roles I mean Glenn you probably know they they do not come nearly as often as folks think they are it's almost like a principal or a superintendent position Mm -hmm. there are very few openings and usually they already have somebody vetted for that role that's been a teacher there for a very long time Um, so my transition was super Swift uh, specifically because I was moving from a private independent environment a school right because i was at a private boarding school and now i'm in this public private partnership so i'm not an employee of the school district i'm an employee of technology access foundation which is a Mm. nonprofit leader in um, education all across the state of washington it is one of only two co-managed schools in a public private partnership in the state of washington so the district itself has its Mm -hmm. own instructional coach And he is amazing. You know, he and I collaborate so well, but he focuses mostly on like the ELA, the humanities and just district stuff that I'm not privy to because I'm not a district employee, right? So he works with like coaching evaluation. You know, he works with, you know, restructuring humanities curriculum. Like that's his jam. My jam is STEM, of course. And I'm a former math educator. So that parlays really well into this role, but it's more than just elevating STEM at the school. I work with working with teachers, of course, to infuse STEM into all of their topics. My big thing in my role, that's a, that's literally part of my job duties, um, is infusing project-based learning as a vehicle for equity. So at the school that I work at and at all co-managed schools, it's not like, you know, science over here. For folks who are listening, I'm like waving my hands, but it's like science over here, right? Math over here, ELA over here. All projects are done together. And of course there are segmented, right? Like if math wants to have a quiz on proportions, you know, and if science wants to have like a formative assessment on, you know, exponential growth and decay in population, they could do that. But the final products themselves actually happen not in a vacuum, but together. So that's been really powerful for me, especially in my role as a coach, because I oversee all of those projects and I make sure that teachers are getting the support that they need. And it's a very, um, I mean, like PBL isn't an unconventional model, but it's unconventional. I feel like to have an entire school (laughs) whose focus is PBL, right? And that's the public private partnership that we have, you know, at this school. And, and, you know, when I was in South Carolina, I interviewed for a couple, you know, public-private partnerships. And I just didn't get a good vibe. Like, it wasn't together. It wasn't segmented. It kind of felt like everyone was doing their own thing. And it felt like they wanted the private partnership money but still kind of wanted to operate on that public standpoint where i'm at now is so different and like people know what they're doing it's so nice to be at a place that just finally gets it and they understand that education doesn't operate in a vacuum and they get that kids have the best learning experiences when they're learning from each other and they know that subjects connect and there's just a lot of neat things going on and opportunities for collaboration that's wonderful another part of my role is i leverage and work with community partners for these projects so because we want the product of course with pbl to be authentic I'm making sure that we're working with community partners, getting the word out, you know, talking to them, inviting them in through Skype in the classroom or Zoom or whatever. That way the kids know that, you know, an engineer doesn't just play with robots all day. You know, an engineer has multiple different things that they do in their day-to-day jobs. Um, and it also, of course, with that authentic element, if a kid sees what the folks are doing then they become interested right and then they begin to think about their career track so i just talked a lot and i'll stop um but it's a really it's it's a really neat position because it's more than just being an instructional coach Mm-hmm. It's instructional coach with the lens of equity and also with the lens of anti-racism, right? Because if we're a co-man at school, we're doing PBL as a vehicle for equity. We are intentionally making choices and decisions in our instructional practices to make sure that all of our students are loved, heard, valued and respected. And sometimes that doesn't come from the straight up curriculum. But what I do is I help them find resources. I help them work on projects. You know, I help them do things so that way they... Can be better at their craft and that kids know that the world is more than just you know the white guy that they see in a textbook
2: so so that's amazing and and i suspect victoria that there are tons of educators out there you know especially right now um during this kind of time right um looking for ideas searching you know for ideas for guidance um and coaching On how to inject these kind of race, anti-racist practices um, and pedagogy uh, into their work and into STEM. And in particular, you know, I'm thinking back to my role before I joined Participate, you know, was working for a STEM and robotics company. And and thinking about how I would have, because I would have been looked on uh, as as someone that could advise people on 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 how to how to do some of this or try to do some of this. Um, and I'm, I'm super interested in what you would tell folks um, who are listening right now and are frankly feeling stuck a little, like not mm-hmm. sure where to even start, but but passionate, really want to. Um, how would you advise them on the best way to inject this kind of like this anti-racist lens into, into STEM specifically?
1: Yeah. So what I always advise for folks to do who are just starting and they, just like how you said, they really have no idea where to begin. The easiest and most impactful thing that you can do on a tactical level is decolonize your curriculum. And what that means is most curriculum in STEM specifically is extraordinarily white, is very white. And this is not me being cheeky. This is just me being honest, right? Like the first time I heard about, you know, hidden figures, right? the first time i heard about it was when i saw the movie it was Looks when crazy. i saw the movie yeah literally yeah, yeah. when i saw the movie and I'm, a, and I'm a black woman you know and my parents were very pro-black they didn't even know until they saw the movie sure. right so, so so we glorify albert einstein you know we glorify you know like uh, watson and crick and not to discount the um you know, the achievements that they've made in STEM. But we know that scientists of color exists, or STEMinists as I call them, right? Like folks that are involved in STEM. Uh, You know, we know that STEMinists of color exists. We know that STEMinists that are women exist. Why don't we really hear about them? You know, we hear about Marie Curie, kind of. You know, we hear about Florence Nightingale, that's about it. There's an entire other world yeah. of folks that are that are just there. So one of the favorite projects that I used to give when I was a classroom teacher, and now I'm kind of reworking and leveraging this as a coach, is I gave my students a list of folks that are involved in STEM. And on that list, it was all the heavy hitters, right? It's like Albert Einstein, you know, it's um, I'm like blanking for words right now, of course, but Albert Einstein was definitely on there. You know, there were physicists. Um, you know, Marie Curie was on there. Florence Nightingale was on there. You know, like, there were quite a few folks that were on there that like people would know and like specifically for me as a former math educator you know it was pythagoras right with his theorem so we're looking at folks that we would know so i gave them the form and i said do you know these people or at least most of them and i was at an all-girls school and they said yes i do you know i know exactly who they are so i said okay so here's what we're gonna do we're gonna do a math report slash project slash whatever. And you cannot pick anybody on this list to do research on. (laughs) And have fun, right? And they were floored. And I got a lot of uh, pushback on them about how they did not know how they were going to find research on anybody else because these were set in stone. So that's kind of that implicit knowledge that is um, unfortunately learned in class, right? And then if we also think about algorithms just on the internet and STEM in general, if you Google scientist, you're gonna see 99% of pictures of white men. Yeah. Or like I even did it yesterday when I was Googling chef, right? Because I also run a STEM cooking class, which is wonderful. But you know, we do an activity what does a chef look like? And when my kids, you know, they Google and they Google chef for inspiration, you know, most of it's white men. And if it's students of color or, you know, like young ladies in the class, they kind of get disheartened because they don't see that representation there.
2: Oh, my God. I just Googled chef in Google images. Mm-hmm.
1: And what do you see?
2: What do you see, it Mike? Is, it is all white dudes. The first Black dude is like 10 pages down.
1: Yes, yes. So I've actually done it within the algorithm enough where the first black guy comes up on page three for me. Swedish chef comes
2: up before Before, the first black guy. Yes, (laughs)
1: yes, yes. You will see Swedish chef before you see a person of color, which is crazy to me, right? So like as, of, of course, a person of color and a woman myself, I look at all these things and I'm thinking it is so intentional and easy for you to take it away from these folks, right? And again, not to discount the work that white chefs do. Mario Batali is my favorite, I love him. But we know that chefs of color exist the same way that we know that scientists and mathematicians of color exist. And it was the most empowering moment for my students to go from literally, Mrs. Thompson, I do not know if I can find anybody. And then we changed that to Mrs. Thompson. I cannot believe I found that much. And that was just a simple project. Scientist, mathematician, engineer, technological person that you find interesting that is not on this list. And that was really easy. And I'm also thinking, you know, with with my math mind, going back to talking about area, surface area volume really cool opportunities to bring up pyramids of Giza, right? Let's not think about, con- or not countries, but, you know, statues and monuments that are in America. Let's take it to other countries, right? Let's talk about Taj Mahal. Let's talk about how the top of the Taj Mahal is made up of many different components that make up the area and the volume. Let's talk about pyramids of Giza. Let's talk about, you know, the pyramid shape and how that relates to surface area. Um, you know, let's talk about, even if we wanted to go Eurocentric but not United States, let's talk about Eiffel Tower, right? It's kind of a pyramid, but not really. So there are a lot of different ways for you to bring in other cultures that are decentering American whiteness, but are still highlighting, you know, the great things you know that other folks do that we just don't seem to get in the United States right now, yeah. and it's frustrating. But there are ways to combat that and make it more equitable for your students
2: so you've you've kind of touched on this already a little bit um but i wanna i wanna dig a little bit deeper um S- stem education has a pretty crappy track record, like like yes. when you're talking about chefs <laughs> and you're talking about you know, lots of other industries, but but STEM education has a pretty crappy track record of being um, uh, a, a field full of white dudes mm-hmm. that look exactly like me. Um, <laughs> and, and it's like a fraternity, and yes. and I'll and I'll even admit that over the last few years, as I personally have been working to include more diverse voices in my news and social media consumption, um, I became painfully aware of how underrepresented people of color were, how little their voices were heard, Um, even though it was obvious, you know, now, now, in hindsight, it's obvious that a lot of people were doing very incredible work. Um, And in this moment, um, I'm in particular thinking about Black people, Mm -hmm. but specifically also as a Canadian um, and as someone that's traveled, you know, to Northern Ontario and a lot of remote communities, um, really aware of the lack of First Nations voices as Mm -hmm. well in the field. Um, And, and, you know, it's funny, me working to personally fix that um, in myself in terms of like the voices I'm listening to and who I'm paying attention to is what brought me to you. Um, which is awesome. Um, I'd love for you to speak to your experience trying to be heard in an ocean of white dudes. Because <laughs> I imagine if I imagine if you Googled STEM education teacher, it would also have a list yes. of ten images of guys, nerdy looking pasty white guys that look like exactly like me.
1: Yes correct. <laughs> Frustration, party of one. Yeah. So if, if I'm talking about my experience, um, specifically being heard by white men, um, I, I, unfortunately, I kind of want to take this a step back a bit and just talk about being heard in an ocean of white people, right? Because yes. sometimes it's not men. Sometimes women, unfortunately, can be just as aggressive to me. Um, and I've actually had more microaggressions towards me from white women in tech, than men. And I'm wondering if maybe it's because as a white woman, like I'm not speaking from my experience, obviously I'm not white, um, but I'm wondering if the white women in the field, right? Because they fought so hard to get there, it's almost like they're part of a secret club, right? And then suddenly a person of color who's also a woman comes up, if that's like competition, like that's something that has always been in the back of my mind because I truly have seen and um, unfortunately been the brunt of more microaggressions from white women than I have been from white men. And to give you a very specific example, when I was a subject matter expert at Microsoft not too long ago on a project, my credentials um, got called into question by a white female. And she was, um, and i am you can't see me right now, for those that are listening, but I'm doing air quotes. She was an audience subject matter expert on education. Homegirl had never taught a day in her life. She had never been a principal. She didn't even have a credential. The last time she was in school was when she graduated from it. I don't know how she, I mean, I know how, she, she was white, but she walked into this position in the ed tech marketing department and was like, hey, I'm a subject matter expert now, y'all need to listen to me. And she was there, I, I don't even know for how long, but then I show up as an actual subject matter expert, right? Like I'm young, I'm 27, but I think I've got five years in the field, I've taught, I'm an instructional coach now, I present at conferences, like, I'm young, but I'm no spring chicken when it comes to this kind of stuff. And especially comparing my resume to hers, I very clearly had more experience and also more expertise in in doing this kind of work. And literally in a meeting, she asked me point blank and it was a 15 person meeting. So it wasn't just me and her. She looked at me and she said, who even are you? And I'm not the kind of person that like loses it in public. But I kind of did, and I said, with all due respect, you know, I have my master's degree in curriculum and instruction, I have my bachelor's degree in elementary education, I have consulted for this company before, I've also consulted for multiple companies before, I presented at the national and international level on my work, you know, I worked here, 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 and here, I do this work, so I'm going to turn the question back on you and ask you, who even are you? And she didn't like that question very much, right? For lots of different reasons, but I think that part of it was because the question was being turned back on her from me, and she also didn't know how she could answer it.
2: So, what's 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 it like to constantly have to recite your resume to people? I can't even, like,
1: (laughs) it's. um, I'm I'm kind of considering putting it on a shirt. You know, that way, whenever I walk into a room, I can just be like, bam, right. here are my credentials, right? Good and it's wild well because I've, I've literally never had to do this unless I'm working with big tech. I've never oh. had to do this in any other scenario, like at, at all the schools I've worked with. Um, I don't know if any of y'all are connected with Craig Kemp with Ignite EdTech. I just recently signed on with his firm, didn't have to answer any questions about my credentials. He was just like, "Yo, I'm interested in your work. If you want to come on the team, you know, you come on the team." And I graciously accepted that offer. Big Tech is the only place where I've had to field my credentials, which is wild. And then the microaggressions that after that happened after that. Let's talk about that, okay? So she tried to uh, stall my pay. She wouldn't approve my pay because I called her out on it and I had to escalate it up the chain. That's something that happened. Um, She also refused to accept my work and tried to consult and actually was successful in um, outsourcing that to a different consulting company that was still within, you know, the big tech realm, but she didn't want to use me as a subject matter expert anymore that led to over budget in the project and then again still trying to not pay me so this took many and i'm not afraid to say this because it happened and i have the receipts and people are aware of it right i literally had to escalate up the chain for a month because people like it's not that they weren't believing me they were just like we want to make sure that we have all of these ridiculous details together because we cannot believe that an adult in her position is acting that way, right? So uh, it took about a month of receipts, you know, hey, here's what happened. I'm positive that it happened for them to, uh, of course I got paid and I got the apology that I was warranted, but again, why is she there? And I, and I, I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent at this point, but I think it really speaks to the fact that as a person of color, and I know that I'm not the only person that was in that position, That's part of the reason why it does kind of become like a white male fraternity, right? Because I should not have to deal with this. No person of color, no woman, no indigenous person should ever have to deal with this. This is not something that should happen. If you look at my resume, I have the credential. So why are my credentials being called into question by somebody that has none? And that's just not me being cheeky. These are cold hard facts. So if I'm taking a look then as to how to fix this, I feel like it's twofold. The first is that we've got to stop letting people without the credential be part of the club. And there are a lot of great companies I work with now. Like, I mean, like I'm a huge Pear Deck fan. I stand Pear Deck. Like Pear Deck is absolutely one of my favorites. I stand and Pear Deck too. Yes, so they're an add-on for Google Slides and Microsoft. I mean, Pear Deck puts their money where their mouth is. Pear released a statement, I remember when all the George Floyd murders started happening in the States, they donated not only $50,000 to anti-racist initiatives, but they also were investing in anti-racist, anti-bias training, and they formed an editorial board, which I'm a part of, by the way, um, to make spaces more equitable for um, you know, like Black and Indigenous people of the United States, and just also all cultures, and then on top of that, for LGBTQ folks and also mm. for special needs folks, I look at that and I'm thinking, that's money where your mouth is. That's not lip service. That's you intentionally investing in things that are going to make your company better. Difference right?
2: between talking and doing.
1: Right, right. Versus what I experienced at that other place, absolutely not.
2: Well, I Thanks- mean, every ed- every ed tech company released a statement. Right. Some of them, some of them weren't worth the words, you know, the clickety clack on the on the computer keyboard.
1: Right, and that's kind of like where, so when I made my blog post about why I love Pear Deck so much, because I really do. I mean, like I've got Perry, you know, he's like chilling on my desk right now. Um, but that was perhaps one of, one of the first, if not the first time, that I've ever seen an ed tech company. Be like, yep, we know things are messed up. So here's what we're going to do and actually do it. Yeah. Right. Like they, they are actually doing the work. And I love, love, love that. And Bunsey's the same way, right? Like Bunsey reaches out to folks that use the platform and they're intentionally, you know, um, looking for diverse authors. They put a spotlight on diverse people and it doesn't seem like pandering because it happens all the time. You know, they don't need to feel or do some type of thing about it because they're already doing it. So to fix it again, we can't have people that don't have the credential, because to me, if I'm in an ed tech company, this is like the equivalent to having somebody in your promo that doesn't even use your products. Right. And if we go even deeper, it's having people on your team that don't even have the credential to be there. And if you've ever read uh, *Algorithms of Oppression* by Sophia Noble, great book that talks exactly about this, like th- this entire concept of tech companies—you know, like where's the black talent, right? Where's the indigenous talent? The talent is out there; they're just not looking for it. They give us lip service about, oh, you know, uh, we're going to start this new credentialing program that you know, like um, doesn't have high school or college degrees, and you can just take a couple classes and work at Google. That's lip service. Right? We hear the programs. We don't know about any of the follow-up. The mm. The talent is there. I hear programs. I hear you want to increase black and brown leadership. What I don't hear is what you're actually doing after you release that statement. But what I would so, like for you to do is fix it from the inside.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. was thinking about Victoria Thompson. that is me (laughs) and and i was thinking about and this is one of those questions i was talking to to my friend about earlier today uh about being you know a black female member of the lgbtq community yes um that's kind of like all of the all of the things that you know (laughs) the ways that you can be discriminated against are like an a tide coming at you my my wife and i call it
1: discrimination olympics right like pick pick one we're somewhere on there i didn't
2: i didn't know how to frame it and i'm so glad that you found a a, you know a way to wrap it in in what i was thinking because my god um i'm i'm interested in your like like your experience must be absolutely fascinating like and and definitely something we can all learn from um I'm I'm curious about how we make STEM more accessible to females and then how we make STEM accessible to, you know, black females and then how we make STEM accessible to also <laughs> members of the LGBTQ community and curious if and, and i'm not expecting you to solve all social issues in one answer to a question to a question <laughs> but i mean are the answers to solving this accessibility problem i'm curious if they're if you think they're different depending on who we're talking about and i think the answer is probably yes especially based on what you said just a few minutes ago yeah talking about your experiences prior um but also there's got to be some intersectionality between those experiences too because you've also referenced how hard you know you're aware that you know there's white women that also had to work pretty hard to get recognized just because they're females as well mm-hmm. right so right. i'm curious about what's different as far as you know increasing the diversity in this in this in this world uh, in the STEM world, um, but then the intersectionalities that exist between those three groups as well.
1: Right. So to kind of go back to what we talked about earlier, so I said the first thing was get rid of them, right? If they're not qualified, get rid of them. Yeah. The second part parlays directly into this question, which is we have to start early and we have to start often with making kids get used to STEM. Um, and because kids are kids, right? They don't know. I mean, they might know if they're like six or five or whatever, if they're gay or they're trans or whatever. Or, you know, they might, of course, like as young women or maybe young men, know that they want to be a part of the STEM profession. But at the end of the day, we're here as teachers to provide experiences regardless of how a student identifies and we have to honor that identity, but we also, at the same time, have that identity alongside the curriculum. And what I'm finding is that the curriculum is not inclusive because again, right, it focuses mostly on white men and not to discredit the work that white men have done in STEM, but we know that STEMinists of color exist and we know that women who are STEMinists exist. And I kind of think back to making curriculum more accessible, but also making it very authentic for our students. And I've spoken about this a couple of times, um, not with y'all, but just on social media and in presentations that I give, where I feel personally very nervous that we're, because I've seen it firsthand, graduating a cohort and multiple cohorts actually of students who think that STEM is just the fluff. You know, they think that it's coding a robot to represent an absolute value equation. They think that it is, um, you know, creating water cycle models in plastic bags. They think that STEM is, you know, making a song about, you know, the quadratic formula. And although these are cool projects and activities, if you were to ask any engineer whether or not they've made a song about the quadratic formula, they're probably going to look at you sideways. You know, the all same the way where if you, what are you ask a about, Biolo- Victoria,
2: I do that all the time.
1: <laughs> the same way where if you ask a biologist whether or not you know they've done a water cycle model from a bag, again they might look at you sideways. So we've got the engagement there. I feel like with the curriculum, the next hurdle is going to be what is the reality from when they leave. K-12, and they go to college and they pursue STEM. Because when I was in South Carolina, I saw this firsthand. I had students that loved their pre-engineering classes. They loved math because of all the projects. You know, they loved science because of all the labs. Then they got to their computer science classes and hated it and either changed mm-hmm. majors or dropped out because instead of doing all these hands on labs, now they're in a situation where they're listening to a lecturer, you know, for 60 plus minutes. And that's the unfortunate reality of collegiate education. Um, but that's kind of that pathway. Right. So if we can provide authentic. Of course, within reason, because I don't expect for a kindergartner to listen to like a 60 minute lecture. But what a kindergartner could do is maybe cut and paste the water cycle, right? Maybe they can have a hands on demonstration. Maybe we can do Skype in the classroom and have, you know, a hydrologist come in and talk about their experiences. Ways to make it real and grounded for our kids. And then as we move up the chain, infusing those authentic experiences with respect to decolonizing the curriculum. So instead of just focusing on Pythagoras, let's focus on some other cool mathematicians that are not necessarily Eurocentric. Or instead of focusing on Watson and Crick, you know, maybe we'll focus on a couple of other folks that are in the realm of biology. Um, so that's a great way, I think, just across the board, right, for representation for black women or and young black women, right, women in general, um, the members of the LGBTQ community. If we were to kind of segment this and make a different person to person or group to group, then that's just even more intentional within that group. Right. So like if I like again, I'm a black female. Um, If I am doing a project on a STEMinist, then I might look to another black female or I might do research on another black female or my teacher, hopefully, uh, might give me resources on, uh, you know, black female groups in the area, you know, that help connect with STEM because these things exist, Mm -hmm. whether or not they're in person or they're face to face, there are PLNs that support this. Mm -hmm. So my advice to folks who are either just starting or even looking is, you know, reach out to PLNs. Because especially in STEM, they're they're all for it. Like girls who code out in Seattle, like they're at, at schools all the time. They love it. So reach out to PLNs, because they're always or usually always very I'm excited to work with youth. Intentionally decolonize your curriculum. Make sure that students have experiences that you know kind of detach them from that American, you know, white Eurocentric thought. And then last but not least, provide them for authentic experiences with community leaders, right? That way they don't know that robotics is just like pressing a button and having a robot dance, right? Like robots in our STEM community do so Uh. much for us, and, and kids have to know that.
0: So, Victoria, let's talk about your new podcast called Courageous Conversations, I was watching the first episode where you discuss the origins of the podcast and you stated that there's this intersectionality, which Mike just (laughs) used that word in the previous question, that was great, between educational technology, humanity, anti-racism, and just courageous conversations in education as a whole. Can you tell us more about that specifically, that intersectionality, and then just the idea behind the podcast as a whole?
1: Yes. Okay. So Melody McAllister, who's wonderful, by the way, yeah. and she's actually the one that got me. I mean, she didn't get me my book deal, but she was the one that specifically said, you need to write a book and it needs to happen right now. Mm. So then, I wrote the book draft, sent it off to Edgy Match, and it was just match made in heaven. So my book's coming out next year. Very, very yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, but so, Melody, you know, she and I have a really good working relationship, and she messaged me just wanting to spotlight me on um, one, one session, right? Just regarding the work that I do. And I shot back to her that no, it should not be one session, it should be a um, multiple series because it was supposed to be about the intersectionality between um, anti racism and educational technology there are so many different topics that can be covered that if we were to literally do it in one podcast, we'd probably be here for like three to four hours. (laughs) So I told her it might be better just to break it up for our peace of mind, because I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I call it Zoomalicious where I'm just zoomed out by the end of the day. And Mm -hmm. like, I I just need a screen break. To my life. Yes, yes. So um, reached out to Melody, Melody was all for it. We decided that that would be a good idea. I didn't just want it to be my voice, though, because, I mean, I talk all the time, but I I think it's a good idea for others to be involved in the conversation, too. So then uh, Dr. Eileen Winokur, and she and I also have a wonderful working relationship. Um, And I also have a great relationship with her son-in-law, who's also on Twitter quite a bit. But I reached out to Dr. Winokur and I said, hey, this would be something wonderful for you to be involved in, you know, because Eileen's been around for way she's longer great. than I am you know she's, she's awesome. great right she was a former head of school for a girls school she's a buncy ambassador like I mean I've got knowledge but she's got knowledge yeah, so she's I she's heavily
2: involved She she's a big yes. fan of Participate too so we've, yes. we've, yeah. we've, we've we've talked to her a lot yeah
1: and she's an ISTE member as well like I actually think that she's like a former director of ISTE. so she's I was everywhere. like, "Yes." Yeah. So I said, "You need to be a part of this." Um, and after a couple different iterations, because unbeknownst to me, I, I mean, I, like I kind of knew, but Eileen's in Kuwait, so like I'm in Pacific time. Melody's in Alaska, and then Eileen is in Kuwait, yeah. so it, it took a couple times just for us to get the time right but we started having this wonderful collaborative experience just about how important it is to have these types of conversations. And it bred specifically out of a scenario that I shared where, um, and and I'm not a new teacher, but I help advise new teachers and whatnot, and not where I work, but part of a group that I'm in, there was a teacher that found a resource um, and it was right from the perspective of a slave, right? And to me, that raised bells, and and not the good kind um, in my head, because that's appropriation, and it also doesn't take into account just the cultural context of what happened there. But as a new teacher, they were very excited to use this resource because they found it for free, right? So if I'm looking at educational technology in my experience and my roles as a vehicle for equity. But then, in the same breath, we're asking for students to write about you know if they were a slave. Something's not matching up here, right? And what we're doing is we're unintentionally, per- perhaps, harming our learners. You know, it's the same way. And a couple of months ago, it was circulating on Teachers Pay Teachers um, there, and it's still up there for some stupid reason. Uh, but there is a um, there's a resource where it compares. And Frank's um, quarantine as a Jewish person during the Holocaust to COVID-induced quarantine during state lockdown, and I mean we have been reporting it like wildfire, but it's still not taken down. And again, I worry because when when I was a new teacher, I was I, I viewed free resources like gold, and, and I and I would take that and I would just use it and not even blink twice. So I don't want that to happen with our teachers, and I especially don't want to unintentionally harm our learners. And, Mike, I'm looking at your face, and you're just like, what the heck?
0: We're not big fans of teachers pay teachers, oh, <laughs> right. I know. just in general. But yes, but call, this is like this is on a new level, though. Yes,
1: this, I call teachers pay teachers the Airbnb of of educational technology because you you never know what you're going to get, right? Glenn has, a very, Glenn
2: has a Glenn yes. has a very storied, prestigious track record of <laughs> smashing teachers pay teachers every chance uh, he gets. It's, you it's, would,
1: it's, oh gosh, I don't a do a lot of, I don't do a lot of TPT bashing um, in public but in private like i'll show my wife like i'll have my phone i'm like look what i found today i can't no. believe what i found i have a friend that like runs a semi-prominent tpt store so whenever i talk about it i, I get messages like ah, victoria i just can't believe you're talking about me and i'm like stop talking <laughs> this is not about you this is about the website as a whole um anyway So I found these things and we started having this conversation, you know, me, Melody and Eileen, and found that of course, there's that intersectionality there, right? Where if we want to be anti-racist with the the inevitability of ed tech, because most of us are in virtual or at least hybrid learning environments, what are we doing to advance that mission, right? Like y'all read White Fragility over the summer, (laughs) you know, you read Bettina Love's book, you read this, that and the other, now that we're here, what's the work that's being done? And we're not seeing any of it done. And then to add insult to injury, we have these nonsense uh, resources pop up. And I was just like, no, I'm at the end of my rope. And, and I think that we were all at the end of our rope at that point. So we decided to create this podcast because it's, it's important. And this we crafted specifically in mind with folks that really want to begin in their journey And maybe if they didn't understand where they needed to go, they at least knew that they had a place where they can discuss and they can get resources straight from the source. No TPT nonsense, no having to vet resources. These are trusted educators that are engrossed in the community that can help you on your journey. So yesterday Fantastic. we had our first one and it was just mm-hmm. intros, why is this needed? The second one is going to be next week, October 25th, and that's intentionally understanding the needs of our students and what this looks like to have authentic and courageous conversations regardless of where you are, um, whether you're first year teacher, veteran, You know, uh, virtual, face-to-face, hybrid, right? What does understanding the needs of our students look like there? The second, which is near and dear to my heart, is that importance of vetting resources, positive intent versus unintended consequences. So if you unintentionally harm a learner, what does that look like? Like, what does the retribution look like? What does the reconciliation look like? And then what can you do as an educator to hopefully, right, make sure that it doesn't happen again? That's huge for me. And then last but not least on November 22nd, uh, because we're doing it kind of like on a semester by semester basis. um, What does implementation look like? And that kind of goes back to what I said, you know, you all have read the books, you've taken place in the seminars, the webinars, all that stuff. Now let's actually put it into place, you know, you want to be anti-racist, you're working towards dismantling white supremacy. What does this actually look like in our respective spaces, you know, from baby steps to full implementation? What does it look like? So I'm really excited personally because I feel like this is something that is so needed. And we see, you know, we call them educelebs, right? Like they've got like a million books and they do their conferences. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes I'll see one pop up and it's like 100 ways to be anti-racist. And I'm thinking, what do you know about, you know, what do you know about being anti-racist? You just popped up on the scene. You know, but Eileen and I both have been doing this for a while. And then just to have Melody along the way as a learner... I mean, Melody's wonderful, 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 but she openly admitted, she's like, I'm here to learn just as much, you know, as the people that are listening. And she's a wonderful facilitator, you know, just super great at fielding questions and navigating that space with us. So... You know, we've kind of got like the advanced right with Eileen, you know, we've got the intermediate with with me and then we've got the beginner with the melody. So it's it's been a really nice collaboration there.
0: That's awesome. So if people want to connect with you online, uh, even find the podcast uh, and then in the the near future, hopefully find. Uh, be able to purchase your book because we yeah. we definitely have to have you back onto the podcast. Where can they find yes. you online, Victoria? <laughs> yes,
1: so I'm way, 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 way active on Twitter. <laughs> That's probably the best way for folks to get in contact with me on even a baseline, basic level. Um, so I'm on Twitter at Victoria the Tech. And then tech, that is T-E-C-H. And everything I have is there, including my website that gives, you know, my blog musings. Um, I actually have a really fun one coming out tomorrow about a microaggression that I encountered two weeks ago. So that'll be Hmm. fun. Um, So it's got my website, which has my blog. It's got my bio, it's got sessions that I give, webinars and you know workshops that I give and all that stuff. And also has a link to my, of course, LinkedIn profile um, and just other ways to communicate with me. So I would say Twitter is by far the best way to get in contact, because not only does it have you know, my voice and my tweets, but it also has the link directly to my website where you can find out more about me.
2: Victoria Thompson, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you. This was wonderful.
2: Thanks
0: for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. On Education is part of the On Podcast Media Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Monica Burns, Mike Matera, Tisha Richmond, and many more by visiting onpodcastmedia.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website, oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at Pod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found on Twitter at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Participate, for supporting us. Check out Participate.com to learn more about them. Thanks, as always, for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.